The following is a production by Cutting to the Chase Podcast. On this episode of Cutting to the Chase, today I talked with Ryan Davis. He is a writer for a lot of different publications. He has covered the Cubs. He has talked with owner Tom Ricketts in the past. So it was really fun being able to hear his stories, get his insight on the current makeup of the team and where things might be heading. We also get into some Simpsons talk as we're both big fans. So definitely a fun episode. Ryan Davis, thanks for making some time to come on to this podcast. How are you? Oh, uh, pretty much the same thing everybody else is up to, just kind of uh, trying to survive the pandemic, I guess. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, has has uh, I assume things have been going well, at least personally for you, yeah. though? Nothing. Right, yeah. No, uh, everything has been surprisingly good uh, over the course of the last few months for me. I've had some good personal milestones, so... Uh, pandemic hasn't been all terrible for me. Just you know, trying to find the the silver linings, I guess. But uh, yeah, overall, just trying to stay safe and uh, stay home and focus on things that are fun, like uh, baseball. Sometimes is fun. Uh, other interests that I watch a lot of Simpsons episodes. Uh, yeah, no, I know you wanted to talk about the Simpsons. Which oh is yeah, cool. we'll, def- yeah we'll definitely. Yeah, we'll definitely. We'll definitely get into that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You mentioned baseball is kind of, you know, baseball, the sports in general right now, obviously we know what's what's happening in the world. So sports are kind of a nice escape. They're trying to do it as safely as they can. So obviously it's still not going to look just like it normally would, but it's kind of nice to have it on TV and sports in general, being able to, to watch games and uh, as long as they're able to do do so safely and everything is able to kind of progress somewhat normally. In general, though, going back over <laughs> the 2020 baseball season, I mean, I always ask people when I talk baseball with them or sports in general, it's kind of like, what, what, what were your thoughts? But obviously, everybody, it's, it's the same as far as like, it was just a weird year in general. But did you have any doubts? Like I did. I, I had doubts going into the season that it would even start or play out because of the way owners players you know the way they're trying to figure everything out and then wondering if they'd even be able to get through a season and it ended up happening but did you uh, kind of have doubts also yeah i had some doubts i i kind of felt like it was probably going to happen one way or another that they that you know ownership side especially wasn't going to give up the whatever little revenue to them you know little in quotes uh but whatever revenue they were they would get out of a 60 game season or however many games they thought it might end up being they knew they were going to get some money out of that especially on a lot of those TV deals so there was no way in my mind that they were going to pass that up if they could come to an agreement now i i think from the start they kind of had a number like this is the amount of games that we're willing to pay prorated salaries and you know kind of in retrospect it it really was that negotiation, if you want to call it that, was just the owners basically going to their table and saying, we know we agreed to prorated salaries, and that's not going to change. They have no reason to back off of that, but we don't want to pay it for so many games. 
so th- I think it was really just a waiting game to wait it out until they could get it down to 60 and see if there were any other concessions that could be made. But yeah, the whole thing was kind of a farce. Um, yeah, and there was a lot of anxiety over whether there would be any games played. And that was, that's not illegitimate anxiety. I, I think people were right to worry about whether games should be played, uh, how many that would be played. I mean, again, a 60 game season, to put that into perspective, what is that, like 25 games in an NBA season or like playing four NFL games and calling it a season? I mean, it, it was. It was a, a very strange kind of a joke of a year as far as actual games played on the field. You can't put any stock in, in statistics, and uh, I think people probably do put too, too much stock in some of the numbers they saw last year, and, and it's hard to break that that habit. So it, just a very strange baseball season in 2020. Yeah, and you know, as you said, it was a, it was a very 60-game season, so it's hard to – I mean – I don't know about you. I don't necessarily, I don't put an asterisk in my mind when I think about the season. I mean, I'm glad that a team like the Cubs got to win it all in a normal 162 versus a 60. You know, if they'd won it, you know, four years ago and then won it this year, I would take it all the same. But I'm glad their first one wasn't in a year like this. With that said, when you look at the Cubs, when you look at Baez and Bryant, guys just really struggled in certain areas. If we had a full 162, do you think... Would you assume anyway, assuming they were healthy, that Bryant and Baez and some of these guys would have kind of their numbers kind of would have normalized or did it just look so and I guess you have to put it in perspective because of what they're dealing with as well with COVID and everything else. But would you have assumed that everything kind of would have normalized or did things just look so off and extreme that would definitely you would still be concerned, I guess, looking at these guys? Yeah, I think that's the thing with the 60 game season and all the caveats that you said, you know, it was during a pandemic, it was during COVID, you know, guys are probably struggling with, you know, not seeing family members and and all these other things. There's a lot of factors that go into it, where if you just sat down and pulled up baseball reference and looked at any other 162 game normal season and saw, okay, well, this guy, you know, had a couple great years and then he struggled one year and then had a couple other great years you might think okay so he wasn't very good that year whatever the reason may be whether he was dealing with injuries or bad luck or um you know got out of it mechanically whatever it was he had a bad year but this year you can't just look at the stat sheets and say good year bad year good year bad year you have to really analyze because it was so short and all those other factors uh individually so like Javier Baez looked like a mess at the plate I don't think he was coming out of that if that was a 162 game season Chris Bryant obviously dealt with injuries uh I don't I don't know unless he got some time off uh if they had had a 162 game season maybe you make the argument that they could put him on the IL for a longer period of time and try and get him healthy and get him you know send him down to triple a or double a for a rehab assignment you know other factors um but then you have guys like wilson Contreras or kyle schwarber who i think were probably just in a prolonged slump uh schwarber was had an ops over 850 um with less than a month to go in the season and he went into i think it was about a, a three-week slump that was pretty bad to finish the year now that becomes magnified because it dropped his numbers way down but imagine that he still had two more months left to play 
uh, and went on a hot streak. Uh, his numbers may end up being in a normal spot. Same could probably say for Wilson Contreras or Anthony Rizzo, who had numbers that were down this year. So I think it's just a case-to-case basis thing that you can't put too much stock in those 2020 numbers. Um, you don't want to look at any of the great seasons guys had, like uh, Jason Hayward got off to a hot start, kind of cooled a bit, but still had his best offensive year as a Cub. It was great to watch, but can you expect that over 162 next year? No, probably not. Ian Happ, another great start, cooled off a little bit, still had a really good season. Um, do you expect that he's a, a you know, all-star level, superstar level hitter going forward? Maybe, but... I don't think we can make that judgment just on 2020. So it's funny with the with the White Sox and then the Cubs, it's just completely different, you know, vibes around each team. Obviously, the White Sox have a bunch of excitement, uh, except maybe except for when they hired La Russa. Obviously, <laughs> things were everybody was kind of like, what the hell is happening over there? But aside from that aspect of things, the buzz and excitement, it always reminded me of the 15 Cubs basically going into their season back then. And from the Cubs perspective, it seems like a funeral. I mean, I know, like I say that with the caveat that obviously there's real things happening in the world. So to be depressed about a baseball team is relative, but you know exactly what I mean. It's like every day, you know, whether we, we kind of expected Theo would be leaving sooner than later. And of course he left. Were you surprised when Schwarber was non-tendered or, I mean, I kind of felt like in my mind, I, I, I expected a change somewhere along the lines in that lot and that that lineup, that roster. So I kind of had come to terms like certain players might be gone. I might have thought that a guy like Schwarber would be back or maybe they would have tried to trade him for something. But I mean, the fact that they non-tendered him, was there just no value you would think from the trade perspective? Because I'm sure Jed was working the phones trying to gauge that interest, right? Yeah, and the problem with, you know, uh, before the non-tender deadline is there is a hard deadline on that and there's no deadline on making trades. So, I mean, it... You know, in regards to the non-tender deadline, you can make them before or after. So, with Schwarber or Bryant or any of the other these other guys, you didn't really see much trade movement around the league, especially in regards to non-tender candidates, uh, at least not big trades. Uh, and I think it's because every other team knew that if the Cubs are pushing to trade Kyle Schwarber or they're pushing to trade Chris Bryant, it's because they they're up against a, a window here. They have a decision they have to make on that. So there's no motivation whatsoever for any team to give the Cubs anything in regards to Kyle Schwarber when he was going to be out on the market, most likely after the non-tender deadline. And, you know, it, again, it, it's I, I harp a lot on the Ricketts family and the money issue. Um, that basically Jed Hoyer's first project is to strip the payroll in a big way. And Schwarber was, you know, he's going to be, I think, 28 next year. Uh, He had a a really good 2019. He was off to a good start and hit the short 2020, had a three-week slump that dropped his numbers. And uh, I I don't presume to think that Jed Hoyer made any decisions based on a three-week slump for Kyle Schwarber, but just imagine if he had finished the season hot. And they had gone into an offseason after he had had a good short 2020 where he hit maybe 15, 16 home runs in the short season, hit, you know, let's say 230, 240, got on base a decent amount, had a good season uh, in addition to that hot second half building off of it from 2019 hit 38 home runs that year, had a, had a really good 2019. Now let's say he has to make that 8 to $9 million decision on whether they can afford to bring back Kyle Schwarber. So 
I wouldn't think that he would make a decision based on what we can boil down to a three-week slump. Uh, but how much worse does that decision look if Schwarber doesn't slump for three weeks? How, how much worse would that decision look? So I think they really kind of lucked out in, in that aspect of it that, uh, you know, Schwarber could go be a, uh, a three true outcome slugger somewhere else as a DH or a left fielder or even a first baseman if he finds a place that, you know, he's not blocked at first base. So that, that could be a decent position for him. So, um, yeah, it, right. just the overall with Schwarber is uh, it wasn't that surprising given the the payroll mandate that they've received uh, from the Ricketts family on how to build their roster for next year. But uh, overall, it still just kind of sucks. We don't even know if there will be a DH in 2021 for the National League. And even then, Schwarber was in the outfield more often than not, I think. And I don't know if that would have even made a difference. I, be, I think if they were going to part ways that was probably going to happen kind of regardless. I definitely don't envy Jed's position as far as trying to figure out where do we go from here? Like you said, they kind of have to strip payroll. So maybe the decision's kind of made like, okay, we have to get to this specific number. So in my mind, I'm kind of looking at it like, okay, the era of what we were used to from 15 to to 20 basically is kind of done. And at this point, obviously we don't know if the team is even going to be able to move Bryant in a trade, for instance, or Contreras, or if they if they were to trade a guy like Darvish or Contreras to, to get max prospects back, then, yeah, you're probably saying we're not going to be contending at least for a year or two. Do you think the Cubs, I know we've been hearing a lot of rumblings that they could be trying to shop a guy like Contreras, or obviously Bryant's name has been in the news for a while. First off, do you think with Bryant, I mean, obviously, like you said before, the value teams are not, they're not in a hurry to give up max. They're not looking to trade a, a big time prospect or so right now, you know, they'd be selling low essentially. So do you think the Cubs in your mind, do you think they would end up trading Bryant this off season? I, I think they probably know that the best value they could get for Chris Bryant, it would be to gamble and wait till the all-star break or the trade deadline. I, I think that's where if you're going to trade Chris Bryant, you might actually get uh, some prospects in return. Um, teams at that point will be looking at, okay, it's the, you know, halfway through the season or a little more, uh, we're not going to have to pay Bryant as much as a full season. We'll get him for the stretch run. We maybe feel more confident because he's been healthy and he's having a good year. So I, I think his trade value could rise quite a bit. Uh, if they just hold on to him, let him prove that he's healthy, let him prove that he's, you know, more 2015, 16, 17 and 19, Chris Bryant, not 2018, 2020 Chris Bryant where he had the injury problems and um you know had you know issues with his power so I think that's really what the wise thing to do is but that's not to say that some team might also think you know hey we we could gamble that Chris Bryant's going to be good this year if we don't mind paying the money we could get him now for a full season at way less cost than what we could get him uh, in the middle of the year and then make a competitive offer that maybe Jed Hoyer sits there and thinks, oh, I don't know for sure we're going to get ever get a better offer than this. Maybe it, maybe it's time to do it. Um, yeah, so I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. I do think regardless, uh, this will be the last season you see Chris Bryant in a Cubs uniform, and that's uh, kind of unfortunate. Um, but, you know, again, it's it's a money issue and it's the Ricketts family who have the money. And if you want to point fingers or, or do any sort of, uh, 
you know, look back on how we got to where we are, it all boils down to the Ricketts family and the money. I know that the the financials, uh, you know, Ricketts has said uh, basically, you know, we're, we're we don't have money to spend on X players or you know paraphrasing but uh you know we don't we don't have the money or he he even mentioned this year um biblical <laughs> it was biblical biblical losses that's yeah, it losses biblical purport, bi- yeah biblical proportions which which i don't deny i mean i know that teams in general so i know i know in general everybody is going through a tough time billionaire millionaire or or the average person like me and everyone else i just i know that especially on twitter I know everybody's like, okay, you're a billionaire owner, blah, 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 spend the money, put it into the team. I know it's not as necessarily black and white as that. At the end of the day, I, I don't know. Like I said, we're not we're not Ricketts. We, they have their payroll mandates that they want to abide by. I guess you would probably be as surprised as I am. Like when I always go back, I think about this team, I go back to the night they won it all and I would think, you know, this team is on top of the world. They may not win it every year, but they're going to be in contention. Who would have thought, you know, four and five years from now? And of course, you never could have seen something like COVID happening. But it just feels like, you know, after 17, it was just like such a decline. And it was just kind of happening before our eyes. I was just like everyone else at first thinking, you know, these these guys have been here. They've done this. They're going to bounce back. I don't know if Ricketts looked at the signings initially of a guy like Darvish and Chatwood and, you know, say, Hey, we're not spending any more money. Or if he was just going to have that stance regardless, you know, but they've had a top five payroll in general over the last, you know, couple of years. And I guess at some point it's like, okay, we're not going to spend anymore. But at the same time, you look at a team like the Dodgers and now I don't know what their specific financial situation looks like, but just from a big market's perspective, they seem to have unlimited resources, prospects, major league players, talent, money. They go at it. I can see the frustration from fans when they're like, why are we not spending? We're a big market team. But at the same time, I don't know specifically how COVID or in general, financially, the, the team, what they're looking at. And then, of course, they had these big projects outside of Wrigley. And yeah, there's. I get the frustration, but yeah. There's two sides of it, right? Like, um, it, when they talk about losses, they think of losses very differently than the average person, right? Let's put it in like simple numbers. Let's say you make a thousand dollars a week as a small business owner, um, and it costs you two hundred dollars a week to run your business. Now, let's say you have a really bad down week, and instead of making that thousand, you only make five hundred. You and I would look at it as so instead of making 800 bucks profit, we only made $300 profit. But MLB owners would look at that and they'd turn around and say, we lost $500 that week. So that's how they're viewing losses. Whereas, you know, if they were to open their books, which would never happen, we would find out, did they still run a, a small profit this year? Uh, based on how much money they're making the last two decades, uh, billions upon billions of dollars, record numbers in revenue. Um, it, it's possible. I don't I don't know. They could have made a small loss, a small, uh, you know, under not meeting their uh, amount of money spent. I, I don't know where that falls. They're able to call it losses of biblical proportions because they project to make so much revenue and so much profit that a cut into any of that 
would be would be enough to turn around and say massive losses. So that's the first part of it. Uh, the other part of it is, uh, by and large, through the pandemic in America, uh, billionaires have made more money, uh, and that's that's fairly measurable. And and again, we're talking about you know, for the Ricketts family especially, I know how they run the Cubs organization. It's separate from everything else they do. The money that goes into the Cubs, whether it be ticket sales, TV deals, concessions, jerseys, whatever, uh, that's the money they spend on the Cubs and not a penny more. They don't take out of their personal savings account and say, well, you know, we sold our other business for $26 billion, which if you just sit down and think about even $1 billion, it's an insane amount of money. They could easily just say, well, you know what, we're going to take $50 million for 2021 and take it out and put it into the Cubs payroll to make sure that we can keep a viable team going, not have to cut guys like Kyle Schwarber, not have to consider trading Chris Bryant for nothing, not have to consider letting free agents uh, who, you know, while the other teams aren't spending are, you know, making pennies on the dollar for their value, not have to let those free agents just get by us. Um, They could easily do that and not really see any trouble with it. The problem is they don't run their business that way. And other teams don't run their business that way. I don't even think Tom Ricketts thinks in that way. Uh, I, I think that's just a completely foreign concept to him. I know I've spoken to him about that. Uh, he and I had a run-in uh, at Cubs convention, and I think it was 2019, maybe no, it was 2018, um, where we had a, a discussion about that where he, he couldn't even understand the thought process of, you know, he just says the money's not there. We only have what the Cubs bring in to spend on the Cubs. And any suggestion that he's a, a one of the wealthiest individuals in the world and has money that he'll never even think about that's just sitting there that he could easily use on his team, that's a totally foreign concept. Right. And that's what I try to keep in mind because it's like, well, I'm not the billionaire who made these billions. They have their specific plan in place they know how to allocate what they're going to do for what they need to do and you know and i i I just i get on the simple level i get why fans look at a billionaire and think on the surface they have they're a billionaire like i don't feel bad for them but i try to understand kind of both sides like you're mentioning to that point so jed's the president he's going to be hiring a gm that could be in or out the organization probably outside the organization if i had to guess if you were the gm that jed hired what would your thought process be as far as how we can improve this team somehow while still having to shed payroll, but still try to be, I guess, basically what I'm asking is, would you look to trade a guy like Darvish if it meant bringing in a haul while his value is high? Or would you look to build around the guys, the kind of the core guys, or, you know, maybe you have to move a guy here or there, like a whether it was Bryant or Contreras or somebody, what would your thought process be as a GM that's trying to obviously improve the team on the field but also think about the long-term aspects, you know, the last, the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, I would have to look at the situation. The problem where we are now is we don't know how drastic the mandate for Jed and his incoming GM and everybody else in the front office. We don't, we don't know how drastic it is. Uh, we know that they tendered Bryant a contract, which is a good sign. Um, that means they believe they can afford to pay him the $20 million or so, that he's going to get an arbitration, but they made the decision not to agree to pay Kyle Schwarber because they were more, uh, they thought it was better for them 
to just let him go for nothing than to possibly be on the hook for up to maybe $9 million for one year. So we don't know uh, where that payroll mandate is. Um, We don't know what ownership is okay with as far as contention. If Tom Ricketts came in and said, you know, we need you to cut it well below $150 million for this year to meet budget. And I don't care if we finish in last place. I don't care if it means finishing last place in 2022. Uh, The more important thing is cutting the payroll. Then yeah, you probably look at trading you Darvish and Wilson Contreras and anyone else who would bring in a lot of prospects because you know, if you're, if you know, you're not going to contend in 2021 and 2022 and uh, the goal is to cut payroll and ownership doesn't care how you get there, then maybe it's time to start a hard rebuild because you don't have enough in your farm system to just say, well, we'll keep the guys, you know, like Wilson Contreras and try and bring up prospects and fill the roster with cheap guys like they did early in the, in, you know, uh, the Tom Ricketts era. And I mean, it, it's, you mentioned earlier, they had a, they've had a top five payroll the last couple of years, but uh, if you remember during the rebuild, they were one of the, generally one of the lower teams in payroll. Um, and Gordon Wittenmeyer, to his credit, took a lot of crap from people like me for standing up and saying, why aren't you spending on this team? And Tom Ricketts usually was saying, well, we're reallocating that money that we could be spending on a roster on guys that we know who aren't going to contend. Why would we waste that money now? We're going to funnel that into years when we are going to contend. And they did. They used that money then. But still, if you average it out, and this was part of an article I wrote that that ill-fated Tom Ricketts meeting that I had a couple of years ago, he he wasn't real happy with, was I averaged out over the Theo Epstein era. They were, uh, I think, seventh, eighth, or ninth in overall Major League Baseball and payroll for that time period. Now, that that doesn't really jive with what we know about the Chicago Cubs and how much money they make. I mean, really, you can probably on one hand or even just a few few teams name teams that you should expect that would pay you know more money on payroll than the Cubs. Regularly, it should be the Dodgers because they have so much money, the Yankees, the Red Sox. That's pretty much it. The Cubs should be up there with just about any team, any other team every single year. And in 2014, the year before they, you know, went to the NLCS and had John Lester and all that, they were 22nd in payroll. They were behind the Oakland A's that year. (laughs) That's, that was when they were at the cusp of, building a contending team, that team that was, you know, much better in the second half of 2014. That was a, a bottom third in the league payroll team. So yeah, th- there's just a lot of these other issues that during the Ricketts era, you know, they've, they've done things like modernizing Wrigley field. They have other projects they've been working on. There's sort of things you can debate whether that's for the better or worse for the product on the field. We've been told it'll all be better for the product on the field, but at this point, we don't know. So I guess long-winded way of saying we have to know just how bad the uh, you know mandate is from the Ricketts family before we know who should or should not be traded. But yeah, if if they're going to do you know try and reset uh, and contend in 2022 and maybe be okay in 2021, but trade players like Brian at the trade deadline and all that 
maybe you hang on to Contreras and Darvish, but yeah, if if you don't think you're going to contend in the next two years, you absolutely have to trade you Darvish right now. Um, exactly. Because he's, yeah. he's 34 and he's coming off the best year of his career. Yeah, exactly. I know I know Patrick Mooney put out an article on this kind of topic not that long ago and everybody right away is like, are you stupid? Of course not, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's like he's 34. He's going to be 35. He has max value right now. Now, I don't know what teams are going to give up. Maybe the trade deadline again is where uh, something like that happens. Like you mentioned, Bryant, you know, maybe of 2021. I don't know what the fans – I don't know what baseball is going to look like in 2021, but let's say it's a little bit back to normal. We have some fans. We're not. I don't know. But at the same time, Darvish almost won the Cy Young this year. Whereas a guy like Bryant, maybe he rebounds a little bit into 2021. It'll be interesting to see if the team is more or less similar to what they're looking like right now. And they either, regardless, I guess, if they, let's say they're in contention for the division, which doesn't mean much these days because everybody wants to see this team go to the playoffs, but, you know, advance, not just win the division and lose in two games to Miami. Um, But let's say they're in contention for the Central and a guy like Bryant has rebounded. It'll be interesting to see what they would do then. I think you're right. I think it would make sense in theory to see if a guy like Bryant can rebound in the first half, maybe up his trade potential. Who knows? I've been saying, you know, Darvish, he's had his uh, his injury history in the past and he's pitching so well right now. But yeah, it might it might make more sense to at least and I'm sure they're considering it, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to or if they at least, you know, were looking into seeing what they might be able to fetch in a return. So I know in general you've obviously contributed for a ton of huge platforms. You mentioned you've you've talked with Ricketts, but I also know how tumultuous, you know, the writing industry is. And it was about what, a year or so ago that, that you were um you took a full time job outside of writing, but you're still able to write these days, right? Like kind of contributing here and there when you can. Um during the season I did a little bit. Um, but for the most part, I've, I've kind of moved on a little, um, I, I do still write, but it's not always about baseball. Uh, I write a lot about, uh, like labor issues. Um, sometimes that does relate to baseball. Sometimes it's, uh, more modern, uh, work issues. Uh, I write, I've been working on a, a fiction novel, uh, just as kind of a fun project for me. That's, actually written now and is in the uh the editing stage and i've been pitching to uh literary agents and you know not getting much traction there but yeah so uh to answer your question i don't um i i still could write about baseball regularly if i wanted to i I had a job writing for forbes in a free freelance role um i recently talked to the editor there and just said you know i don't i don't envision writing again anytime soon so you can you know stop emailing me <laughs> but uh <laughs> but yeah so it it's there if i want it to but um yeah you what what you said is correct the the industry is tumultuous it's um oftentimes very clickish and it can be difficult to break in as an outsider um yeah i didn't get a journalism degree um so yeah it's it can be hard uh, i still have a lot of really good friends in the industry who are uh, exceeding uh, that I should shout out like, uh, uh, Russ Dorsey. He and I were both, Mm. uh, interviewed for the MLB.com job that he got, uh, two years ago. Uh, and, and I was so happy for him that that actually ended up being, you know, really good for me that I didn't get that job. And he was more qualified for it to be totally honest. Um, he does just a fantastic job and the Sun Times saw that really quick. So, 
after one year working there, he was able to move over uh, as and be the new beat writer for the Sun Times, which is huge. Uh, so there are things like that where, like, yeah, you can succeed in that industry, uh, but it's extremely difficult, and you have to you know work so incredibly hard. And it's not that I didn't, but it, it just you know my circumstances, it was never going to pay off the the way I wanted it to. So. Uh, yeah, I kind of stepped away from it. I still write if the opportunity to do something baseball related, um, worked with my schedule and wasn't going to force me to uproot my family and move to a bigger city or, you know, whatever it is, if, if an opportunity came up, I would absolutely still do it. But to answer the question, no, I'm, I'm not really writing much about baseball anymore. I'm more, I'm trying to enjoy it as an observer. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's totally cool. Like I, uh, not that this compares really, but it just reminds me of me and I've talked with similar people in the past who maybe at one time or another in general, you know, worked in sports or have had internships, but I'm like, yeah, I, I don't work in sports, but I kind of don't mind that because I like having my steady job or I like doing stuff like this on the side as a passion project. I totally get that. Personally, I'm, I'm glad that you're still kind of on Twitter because I know for a while I think you took a break there. So mm-hmm. I love being able to kind of keep up with you, chat, see what you're up to. Um, in general, I consider you a huge success for what you've been able to accomplish. Well, thank you. you. Mentioned talk, like, again, talking with Ricketts. Put or... you in contact with my wife. Let her know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't know uh, if this means much to you personally, but I think think it's cool in general like i mean you're verified on twitter so obviously you've done a lot of awesome things to be in the position that you've been into to you know do what you've done so i think that's pretty cool that's why i knew you would have a lot of good insight in general did you have any specific stories that might funny stories or just a cool story that you kind of were able to experience and i was also curious if you got to interact with len casper very much Yeah, i can tell a few stories yeah that and that's the thing is you know for somebody like me who just freelanced you know i, I did work for sporting news i did a few things for the athletic um uh, forbes there were there were plenty of others i wasn't a major beat writer i wasn't on tv so a lot of the stuff that i wrote or um experiences i had i shared with close friends or sometimes on twitter but um, there are really cool stories that I have that, you know, I, you know, going back to what you were saying, thank you so much for saying that you, you know, if you view me as a success, you know, sometimes it's, it's yeah. hard to see outside of your own bubble. Uh, and you know, some of the stuff can be frustrating when you don't, uh, you know, get jobs that you hope you would get, or, you know, you, you kind of feel like you're boxed in uh and not able to advance your career so you know it's it's hard to sometimes put that in that perspective so i do appreciate those things i, I appreciate you saying that so uh but yeah uh first on len casper uh i've interacted with him at the ballpark uh i've talked with him on the phone for uh, a story i wrote what an awesome human being uh he's just so gracious and has zero ego uh, he's always willing to, um, you know, have a discussion. He doesn't look down on anybody else. Um, you know, he, he looked at me and talked to me the same as he would any of the beat writers or any of the members of the organization, just a, a classy human being, um, to give you a good story about him. I wrote a, a, a story for the sporting news on, uh, Ryan O'Malley. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, he was the I do that. I, yeah, yeah, the kid. He's actually from my hometown, Springfield. Uh, he 
uh, came up in 2006 uh, was basically the Cubs were out of pitchers <laughs> uh, and they had had a, a long uh, extra inning game and they, they had to use the next day starter, which was Rich Hill, which a, a, a interesting part of the story ended up being um, one of Ryan O'Malley's best friends still is one of Ryan O'Malley's best friends. Um, they roomed together throughout some multiple stops through the minors. Rich Hill had to pitch in Houston. So Ryan O'Malley got the call to the big leagues uh, even though by that point in his career, he kind of knew he wasn't a big league pitcher. Uh, he he knew that his his career was kind of on the fringes, didn't have great stuff, didn't throw that hard. Uh, but then he went out there and threw, I think it was what, eight, eight shutout innings. Yeah, uh, eight innings. I'm looking at it yeah, up right now. Yep. Eight, eight shutout innings against the Houston Astros uh, against Andy Pettit. Which is just oh, yeah, yeah, just a phenomenal thing. He He basically woke up super early in the morning, got no sleep, uh, had to you know, try and nap in the back of a, a limo on the way to, on the way to Houston, just a really interesting story. And Len Casper talked to me on the phone for about an hour about that for the story. And just kind of, again, 10 years or, you know, recapped uh, a game from 10 years before um, with the same amount of emotion that he watched that game and uh, just a great person um, to tell you any other cool stories. Uh, when the Cubs were in St. Louis, it was 2017, uh, toward the end of the year, uh, I was down there for, uh, I think it was the sporting news doing a story and they just so happened that they clinched the division, uh, while I was down there, uh, for those couple games. So I, I got to go into the clubhouse for the, uh, plastic on the wall, uh, beer and champagne celebration. Uh, and I got to be in there for that. That was a really cool thing. Um, I was interviewing a player. I don't remember who it was, but Theo Epstein came up and was trying to take a, a bottle of Budweiser, which was in his hand, and like fling without throwing the bottle, but fling the beer out of it at the player I was talking to. But he <laughs> just flung beer directly into my face, just like three times, like <laughs> back, back and forth, back and forth, just like spraying me in the face with beer uh and and he was very unapologetic about it which makes it even funnier <laughs> like he he didn't seem to notice or care that it was me that he hit um so yeah that that's kind of a cool story uh there but in general if i were to share you know other things it's the tom ricketts interaction uh tom ricketts told me the story i wrote about him and the ownership of the team leading up to that Cubs convention that year. He said it was the biggest piece of shit he's ever read. Um, so that was kind of wow. cool. Uh, I, I met so many people, you know, in or around the Cubs that fans would recognize Kelly crawl, another person, just one of the best human beings I've, I've met, uh, non pretentious, uh, just very kind, very generous. Uh, Tony Andraki, another good person, uh, Sahad of Sharma has always been really good with me. I, I, you know, wrote for him as my managing editor when he was with Baseball Prospectus. So yeah, there's there's a lot of cool people in the industry who are doing really well, um, and I'm really happy to have met and spent time with those people and gotten to see a little bit behind the scenes. Go into the clubhouse. I was covering the Cubs for NBC Sports Chicago so that Tony Andraki during his first full season as a beat reporter could actually get a break. Uh, I was covering them uh, it, for NBC Sports in St. Louis when they traded for Cole Hamels. And so I got to be there shooting a video on my cell phone 
which ended up on NBC Sports's uh, homepage of Cole Hamels talking in the clubhouse after being traded to the Cubs. So there, there's little things like that that you just kind of you kind of hold on to and think about and think this is really cool for me. Nobody else cares about this, but this is really cool for me. Yeah, that is that is really awesome. And one uh, one of the ones that you mentioned a while ago that always kind of I always remembered was I I I don't really remember much of the context. I think you'll remember exactly when I bring it up. But you were I think you were talking with Lester or talking to Lester. Or didn't he say something like, "Do you not have fr- I don't I, what was it like? <laughs> you don't have friends or something like that? What, what wasn't that the? Yeah, it was actually my very first time in the clubhouse at Wrigley. I was doing a story because Dexter Fowler. It was 2017. He was back at Wrigley for the first time. And I went into both clubhouses to talk to Cubs and Cardinals players. I was doing a couple stories um, that I was trying to gather quotes for. And I was talking to Anthony Rizzo about Dexter Fowler. And one of my questions, and and again, this is being new to the process. The fact that when you're freelance and you get to go into a clubhouse for the first time, there's no owner's manual, (laughs) I guess. There's no, there's no (laughs) training for that. You just kind of go in and, try and do what everyone else is doing. I asked him a question that I don't think it was a terrible question per se, but I kind of set myself up. Uh, But I I asked him during the season, do you still keep it as close in contact with Dexter now that he's on the other side? Or do you try and kind of let the season be and kind of stay in your own bubble? And I probably didn't ask it in an articulate way and uh, basically (laughs) said, do you have friends? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and oh, i was yeah, like yeah, yeah okay yeah and he's like do you have friends that are in other cities and i said yeah and he said do you still talk to those friends even though they live in other cities <laughs> and i was like yeah and he you know when i tell the story that that sounds kind of like anthony rizzo being an asshole but he was doing it in a very playful anthony rizzo way oh it's rizzo yeah. not Lester. okay yeah okay. it was anthony rizzo um right, it was right. a very playful way but uh, still, it was a little bit humbling. Uh, yeah, I I have a few other uh, Lester stories. Uh, I don't know how well you knew uh, John Arguello, who uh, ran Cubs Den. I do know. Yeah, um, I do remember him. Yeah, he he had just passed away. He was um, he lived in Arizona. Uh, we'd only met face to face a couple times, once at spring training at, at a Cubs game, and then a couple times in Chicago. Uh, but John and I were very close and he had, he had just died. He had cancer and was battling it, um, for a while. And I was in Chicago to do a game and they were doing a, an event for John Arguello, uh, that his, his wife and family had come up for, uh, they were doing that at the Nisei lounge and John Lester, uh, donated a pair of autographed cleats, uh, that he had, uh, to be auctioned off, um, and and that was really cool and i was in in the clubhouse the next day and john was in there and right right towards the end of media availability i went to him and just wanted to tell him that i was one of john's friends and that i was there and uh that i really honestly appreciated that and uh, that his family did too and just to tell him thank you and uh john was actually very apologetic that he wasn't able to be there said he wanted to be there in person himself uh but had unfortunately had a, an event that took up his time and uh, had to be somewhere else. And he and I stood there and just talked about how much cancer sucks. And um, it, it was, it was just a really cool human moment. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, afterwards I kind of was just like, huh, I really just stood there and just talked about like human stuff 
with John Lester in the clubhouse and we just kind of like connected um, with each other. It, it was very honest and open and it, just what a, what a nice person. Um, so that that's another cool story that I kind of carry with me and think about sometimes. Yeah, I can see how humbling that could even be, the human being able to connect with a player on a human level like that. You meant like obviously Lester's been through it and even Rizzo. See, those are cool experiences that you get to share. That's pretty awesome. And I also had to bring this up. So and I think you'll definitely remember this. I know you will, obviously. <laughs> you wrote the article, but it was five years ago. I was doing some light research. Just I wanted to have some, you know, interesting things to kind of bring up and just be uh, clear. Just be clear before you say it. Five years ago, there is no guarantee I will remember what this article was, but I'm sure I'm sure well, if it meant something to you, I probably will. You'll definitely it'll definitely come back to you because the title it was in Cubs Insider. The title was Daddy's Little Girl's First Cubbies Game. Oh, yes, I do remember that. So one. I, I was reading that. Definitely. Yeah, definitely an awesome story. Um, just being able to experience and share that with your daughter. So I wanted that. I thought that was really cool just because you got to like you said, you got to experience a lot of different firsts. And that was definitely one. So, uh, yeah, that that was really cool that you got to, you know, share that. That was that was a really big one for me, uh, taking her to her first Cubs game that, uh, yeah, uh, that, that one meant a lot to me. Uh, and, and it's one that I haven't thought about in a while. Um, she was, I think she would have been about four at the time. So she's about nine now. Uh, doesn't, she's not in love with the Cubs like a lot of kids are, but she, she has a lot of love for Chris Bryant. <laughs> and Dexter Fowler and yeah. Javier Baez. I'll say it that way. That's that's understandable. And she absolutely loves. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of us feel that yeah. way. Uh, and she absolutely loves the event of going to Wrigley Field, which we've only done a handful of times. Uh, as she's gotten older, she's not a huge sports person, but she gravitates more towards basketball in general. I think she finds that more enjoyable to watch. So we try and connect on that. But yeah, that article was a whole lot of fun to to write. It was her first Cubs game. I actually um, met up with Jared Willis uh, at at the game that day. He was there with his son, um, and so we we had known each other for a while before that. But we we met up and hung out a little bit. And then after the game, it was one of those. Um, I don't know if they still do this or if they just did it during the um, you know the the bad years and then 2015 2016 era but they did this kids run the bases um after the game on sundays i think um and so in the eighth inning we went down and got in line and stood uh, down in the bowels of wrigley field waiting for our our turn and then they kind of funnel you onto the field after the game has ended uh they lost that day and um i got to walk in uh, in that right field corner door and then um, onto the field over the pitching mound visitors pitching mound, which, you know, at the time was uh, down the first baseline. And then my daughter got to run the bases and she was so little, she wanted me to run with her. So uh, I ran alongside her uh, rounding the bases at Wrigley. And then when she got done, she just stood on home plate <laughs> <laughs> she didn't step on it and then walk away. She just stood. <laughs> she was so happy and so proud of herself. So yeah, that that was a really cool dad moment. Yeah, that's really cool. It's and yeah, you know, so, uh, talking about Jared, I actually got to talk with him a few months ago. So he's another cool guy. It's definitely cool to talk with guys like you and Jared because you've both been able to you know write and cover these teams and. So it's definitely cool. I think it's cool just from my perspective, because like you said, you're you were kind of like a, 
as I would put it, you were like a professional freelance type, you know, writer being able to do what you're doing. And mm -hmm. I'm not even that. I'm just doing this as a hobby. But uh, I think it's cool just being able to chat with different different people like that. So really cool. But um, yeah, real fast. I uh, when you mentioned Ryan O'Malley, that name did ring a bell, but I had to look him up, and I didn't realize that he literally spent a week in the majors, and that was it. But you mentioned the, yeah. the game against the Astros, and some might say, oh, he didn't make it, but that's a success for him to get to the big leagues, have that really good game. Uh, maybe it was just a week, but not a lot of people can even say they've been to the majors. So really cool. I think it's a cool moment that he'll obviously always have too. So yeah, to pay off the rest of that story, he um, he had that great start against the Astros. It was a really big deal for him personally, and it was a really big story for the Cubs and kind of like the bright spot of uh, a really terrible Cubs season. He got to make his next start on the mound at Wrigley. I think he was pitching against Jamie Moyer in that game. So what a career Two two games started one against Andy Pettit, one against Jamie Moyer. Uh, and he didn't, I think he gave up a couple runs early in that game and then started to settle down. And he, I think he said he was throwing to Henry Blanco and he had a pitch that he threw. Um, I think it was actually a, like he was just lobbing the ball to home plate, like not an actual pitch. And he felt something in his arm and then he threw the next pitch and something was very wrong. And he said at that point he knew um, that he was coming out of the game and Dusty came out and pulled him from the game. But he also mentioned that um, from that point, it was very close to the end of the year. The Cubs put him on the, the MLB 60 man DL at the time and, and let him stay around with the team. Um, Jim Hendry knew at the time, according to, you know, kind of what Ryan had told me that, um, you know, things were going to be changing. Dusty was going to be gone. There's going to be a lot of overturn and that, you know, maybe Ryan's chances of pitching in the big leagues when he got injured kind of ended. Uh, and that's the way it turned out to be. But he was very thankful that, uh, the Cubs let him travel with the team and be with the team, uh, from that point through the rest of the season, um, got to make the the big league salary and um, you know, got to have his locker and go to the games and, and, you know, be in the clubhouse. So he was really thankful for that, that they didn't, you know, okay, so he's injured. We're sending him out. Um, they let him stay around and that meant a lot to him. It was a, kind of a small gesture, but, uh, but yeah, that, that was a really cool part of the story to me was, you know, he got to pitch those games, but he also got to have the full experience. Yeah, that, that, that is really cool. The news about Len Casper, I don't know about you, probably, I know for all of us, I think, maybe not you, maybe you knew something, I don't know, but uh, I, I I would say that at least for me and a lot of people on Twitter that I was, you know, when the news broke, it was just like, that one stung me more than even Schwarber being non-tendered or any players that I could have expected because that just seems so out of the blue, but, you know, it sounds like Casper made the decision on his own, it's something he wants to do and he's following kind of like another dream that he had, so I think that was really really cool for him to be able to experience that and from his perspective he gets to see another ideally <laughs> another good Chicago team basically who knows what the Cubs are going to be looking like but it looks like he's going to be able to kind of ride that wave of what the Cubs kind of went through from 15 to 20 so kind of a cool moment for him as well yeah and I'm, I'm happy for Len because that's what he wants to do uh, it's been talked to death the fact that going from TV like a Cubs TV job which is kind of one yeah. of the premier jobs uh, going to White Sox radio, uh, most people in the industry would view as a major step backward or step down, uh, probably a step down financially. Um, but 
you know, that's what Len wants to do. And Len's always been kind of a, a radio guy. He, he really appreciates it. And I, the main thing that I think for him that maybe didn't get played up enough uh, as much as the radio aspect was, uh, I think Len really wants to call postseason games and he really wants to be calling a world series. And, and he did mention that, but I think that's probably the major factor is some guys in the industry really get beaten down by the fact that they go on the ride with the 2016 team and, you know, call every game of a 103 win season. And then when the playoffs roll around and the Cubs are about to go on their world series run, Len is kicked out of the booth and basically has to, you know, be resigned to the fifth inning duties on the radio station. Um, And that sucks for guys like him. And I, I know that probably burns him like crazy and, and kind of not, not that he didn't enjoy the win of 2016, but maybe left a little bit of a bad taste that he didn't get to be as much of a part of the postseason run. So I think he looks at things like that. The radio guys get to be part of it, whereas the TV guys get kicked out for the national broadcasts. So I think that's something that he really wants to do. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because you're right. TV, it's Fox and TBS and whatever. And radio, it's the same, same crew. So I think that's a really good point. So definitely wanted to get to a quick Simpsons chat with you. I know you're a big fan <laughs> like I am. I uh, I typically will throw on the uh, the repeats on FXX just because they're on and I can, you know, Thursday nights are great. I, I don't know about you. I really love, I mean, I know everybody loves the older episodes. I, I really haven't watched the newer seasons as much um, like I used to. And it's just not the same. But do you watch the new ones too? Or do you kind of gravitate towards the older ones? For the most part, I watch the older ones, but yeah. I do occasionally I'll get on Hulu and be like, oh, there's like six new Simpsons episodes from the recent season. And I'll kind of go pick through and see, you know, see what you know some of them are, are about. And uh, I, I do still like the new stuff. Uh, it's it's definitely not the same. That's right. the major thing, um, like you said. But right now I'm actually I decided that uh, since we're hopefully seeing a little light at the end of the tunnel for the pandemic, um, I decided to start a full Simpsons rewatch uh, just at the beginning of this month. So a couple days ago, really, I'm I'm towards the end of season one. Uh, I kind of put it on in the background while I'm working from home or if I just have some free time. So I, I want to see how far I get before things start getting back to normal. Uh, and I guess back to normal for me would probably mean when I've been vaccinated and I can go out and, and sit in a restaurant without having to think about, uh, everything else going on around me. Maybe when, maybe when we are no longer required to wear masks, when we're near people, we don't know. Um, but yeah, I want to see how far into the Simpsons I get. I'm, I'm trying to keep my, my, uh, optimism low (laughs) on that. I I'm, I'm betting that I get into season seven before things get normal again but we'll see yeah you know it reminds me too um it was around this time like i think it was around christmas it might have been between christmas and new year's last year they ran the entire series marathon on fxx so it was just 24 mm-hmm. 7 and i was just soaking that up because i was just watching you know all the old episodes and on through the years it was crazy because it, i think it was like a full maybe it was just exactly one week but i was like wow they were able to do 24 7 that's how long 600 plus episodes <laughs> can run i really do need to catch up on the newer ones and that goes back the last probably 10 years i think since college for me so going back to like 2010 uh i could really just binge the newer ones like you said on hulu and catch up on some of those do you have any like top five simpsons episodes that come to mind right away yeah um 
And before I get to that, I, I will say on the newer episodes, I think what would be really new and refreshing is if they kind of change the formula a little bit. And I'll, mm. I'll toss this out to you. I've, I've uh, kicked this idea to friends in the past. Uh, what if they did a flash forward where they went out of the Bart is 10, Lisa's eight, everyone stuck in their age. I think everybody really appreciates the episodes where they look forward, where, uh, where the kids are young adults and the parents are older. What if they did that? You know, what yeah. if they did like, like the final couple seasons of Bart and Lisa in high school and then graduating high school. Like, I think that would be interesting, right? Like that would kind of renew some of the interest, give them new storylines, new places to go. Yeah, exactly. Especially because, you know, at some point the series will end. So let's say it's, if they know they're going to end two years from now or whatever. Yeah. Like you said, f- um, fast forward them they all kind of are into their next phase of life yeah that would be different interesting because you know it's funny it it reminds me when i when i hear marge talk um i don't know if it's just i don't know if it's i think it's the same voice actress but um it's Mm -hmm. it's the same voice but it's not like you can tell it's just different yeah and it's like there's already the voice actress is aged 32 years exactly (laughs) exactly right yeah so it's like First off, it's awesome that they're able to pretty much stay as consistent as they have. But yeah, like you said, there's age and different things, especially Maggie, because she's been a baby forever. So it'd be kind of funny if she's just like when they do those, uh, you know, those episodes where they're like in the future and they still they still run the gag of Maggie never talking. But it would be funny if she was actually regularly talking in the uh, in the future, like normal, like in every episode. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I I think there are just plenty of avenues for um things you could do with that but uh, as for a uh a, a top five oh boy um i know i've done this before and i don't want to deviate too far from the um from the top fives i've put out there but uh, i know i did a story for cubs insider back when it was on uh chicago now and uh gave you know my my top episodes um I, I would say number one is pretty consistent for me, and that's you all you only move twice. Uh, that better known as the Hank Scorpio episode. Uh, that is an an absolute phenomenal, hilarious episode. It has everything I like about The Simpsons in it. So yeah, that that is probably what my number one. It has been consistently uh, working my way backwards. Uh, just thinking about uh, Cape Fear. Uh, that's the sideshow Bob uh, episode that kind of spoofs the movie Cape Fear. Uh, Robert De Niro, uh, really good. I think late eighties, early nineties movie. Um, and Kelsey Grammer is just a phenomenal guest on The Simpsons. He's always doing great work. Let's see. Uh, I also like the Springfield Files, another season eight episode. Uh, Mr. Burns is the alien uh, in the woods. D- just so many great gags in that episode. Um, there's one that still sticks out to me. Granted, the episode was done in like the mid nineties. Um, but there's a scene where Homer and Marge are in, or Homer and Bart are in the woods and Bart's telling scary stories and he's holding the flashlight on his face. And he says, and that's how much college will cost for Maggie. <laughs> and it's, it speaks very loudly to us now. Uh, what? 25 years later. Um, so that's three of them. Uh, if I were to finish out my top five, I'd say Mr. Plow mm-hmm. uh, is in there and Flaming Moe's. But th- those would be my my top five. I was trying to think because I was like, I love all the older 
seasons and episodes and it's like i was trying to think what would my top five be and it would probably change but if i had to think of i I was just trying to think on the spot like i like like you said um you only move twice was good i always love the scorpio meme with the uh Mm -hmm. that that uh the fire gun or whatever it is but uh yeah that's a great (laughs) one i don't remember the name of it but the one where homer's boxing dredrick tatum uh that was a good episode when he becomes a boxer that is yep that's a good episode i like i liked homer's Uh, enemy too with uh with grimes yes yeah and a lot of people argue that um that that episode actually ruined the simpsons Hmm. um which is which is interesting i don't agree with it but i i see the argument which is um, that that was the first episode where, the, you know, the audience viewed Homer as a moron, uh, but uh, it was never acknowledged in Simpsons universe that Homer was a moron. I mean, we knew he was a, a bit dim, yeah, but not any more than an average human. And they kind of made him uh, for that episode. They kind of let the audience in on the in universe. Yeah. Homer is a complete idiot and he should be dead. Um, he should have killed himself a hundred times by now. And like, why does he have a Grammy award? And why does he have a, why was he on a uh, tour with the smashing pumpkins? Like you see it through Frank Grimes, eyes who's supposed to be like Mr. Everyman, And he's just like, this makes no sense. I hate you. Uh, so a lot of people point to that episode for ruining the Simpsons. I don't think it ruined it. I think it just took it in a different direction, but uh, yeah, that that's a really big episode uh, for my youth. Um, I remember watching that one when it first aired and thinking it was so funny, um, especially the end where Frank Grimes is like, oh, I don't have to wear safety gloves because I'm Homer Simpson. And then he grabs the, <laughs> the uh, electrical wires and electrocutes himself like anyone would and dies, uh, which is a very dark ending, but a, a very funny ending for what the episode was uh but yeah the the top episodes for me i mean there's just so much especially when you just narrow it down to like season three to season eight uh was just it's peak nostalgia for me i have i have a close friend who i did a simpsons podcast with for a short period of time and he and i text about the simpsons still constantly and uh i i would say that if there, if you narrowed down how many times he and I texted each other and said, "Oh, th- this episode is definitely a top ten all time episode," we've probably said fifty episodes to each other that are definitely top ten episodes. So th- that's that's kind of the the Simpsons in the '90s was just some oh. of the best comedy ever written. You know the, the the part about when you mentioned Homer and it's like that was the episode where it kind of makes us realize how dumb he really was. It it reminds me um, if you go back to like I don't know if it was the first se- I think it was the first at least the first couple seasons. I remember episodes in which Homer was actually there was the episode where they went to Burns's. Uh, it was like a I don't know, employee get together day or something. And Homer was the one trying to make sure everybody was, you know, staying uh, on their best behavior. Mm-hmm. And Marge was the one that got drunk. I, and- I just watched this. Yeah, I just watched this one the other day. Yeah. From my rewatch. And I was like, wow, Homer was like the opposite of what we came to really, ex- you know, become acquainted with throughout the series it's at least in those initial episodes so it was kind of funny seeing that and then i was also just remembering i like the episode again i cannot remember the name but i like the episode where um apu was battling the immigration and you know he had to pass the citizens Mm -hmm. but the thing that struck me when i watched that episode a few years ago and i've seen it a million times but it was around like 92 i think when that when that one aired but what struck me was how relevant all that stuff is still today whether immigration or even just quimby 
you know, it goes from the bear and the bear attacks to let's just let's just put this immigration thing out there and blame them. There's a lot of nuggets like that in the early seasons of The Simpsons, which is why it's so brilliantly written, mm-hmm. because they touch on things like that that kind of stand the test of time. Governments have been doing they've been scapegoating minorities and immigrants and other marginalized groups for you know, hundreds of years. So yeah, it's, it's interesting that it still rings true today. Uh, interesting and sad, but yeah, yeah that, you right. know, Mo, Mo being the one immigrants, I knew it was them. Even <laughs> when it was the bears, I knew it was them. And then Mo's the one who ends up being deported <laughs> at the end of the episode uh, yeah. <laughs> because he, you know, was lying about his citizen status. Um, but yeah, that, that that one is a really good episode. There, there's just so much. It, it, we would talk for hours. Yeah. We could we could go on forever talking about um, the best stuff from The Simpsons, especially in the early seasons. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Apu is a fan of the Nymets. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are his favorite squadron. Anyway, like you said, we could definitely go on for hours just talking Simpsons. But uh, I definitely don't want to take up any more of your time. You've been awesome. Uh, it's just been great getting a lot of your perspective from writing and baseball in general. And thanks again for uh, taking some time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know we've been trying to pair this up for a little while. I've just been busy. and um, But uh, I appreciate you sticking with me and getting me on. And it's been fun. We should definitely do this again when uh, maybe when there's more good things to talk about in baseball. It was awesome having you and definitely have to do it again soon. Absolutely. The theme music for this podcast is courtesy of my guy, John Christian. He has a band called Let It Sleep. It's on Spotify. You can catch this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Go ahead, rate it five stars, leave a review. Three, two, one, zero, zero, and